With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is the Alien UFO podcast, episode 104. I'm your host, Simon Bowne. My mission here at the Alien UFO podcast is to investigate all things that are part of the wider UFO phenomena. I'm looking at UFO sightings, alien abduction, historic cases and other related events. Now in this episode I'm bringing together some of my favourite episodes on historic UFO cases. I've cut out clips from the interviews and put them together in this compilation. There are discussions on Roswell, the Rendlesham Forest incident and a UFO sighting over a nuclear missile silo. So the first clip is from episode 7, and this was an interview with Ross Coulthard. Ross, an award-winning investigative journalist, has been intrigued by UFOs since mysterious glowing lights were reported near New Zealand's Kaikoura Mountains when he was a teenager. Ross has investigated UFOs in what became the most confronting and challenging story of his career, speaking to witnesses, researchers, scientists, spies and defence and intelligence officials and insiders. In this clip, Ross talks about Roswell. Could we get on to your chapter, chapter two, Roswell Implausible Denials? Um, one thing that stands out for me in that, the thought of Roswell, is that the base, it was Lieutenant Walter Hart released the press release initially saying that they'd captured a disc and that they had one. And then the next day they say, say it's a weather balloon. They're trying to suggest that these military personnel can't tell the difference between a disc and a weather balloon. It's funny because the people who were accused of confusing a disc for a weather balloon are not the people who ordered the issuing of the press release. That's the really interesting thing to me about Roswell, is that it was the commanding general of the 504th Bomb Battalion, the people who actually dropped the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, was a man of great repute, ordered his PR officer to put out a press release asserting that the United States Air Force had recovered, quote, a flying disc. Now, this was subsequently misreported by the media, not the first time, as the, the, the US Air Force had recovered a flying Saucer. But needless to say, the mere assertion of a recovered flying disc in that period of 1947, where there'd been almost hysterical numbers of public sightings of discs all over the continental USA, starting with um, Kenneth Arnold's sighting over Mount Rainier in Washington State in Northern California, Northern California, 
um, it was quite clear that the public were hyper vigilant for flying discs, flying saucers. You know, there was a lot of speculation that that something was happening, that some kind of space object was visiting this planet. And so for the Air Force to put out a press release like that was just quite extraordinary. And I've, I've never really understood why people attach so much significance to the fact that um, uh, the intelligence officer, Jesse Marcel, who was subsequently accused of making this confusion, was forced to pose with what was clearly weather balloon detritus in the office of his general uh, and essentially forced to go through the humiliating backdown of, um, you know, publicly displaying wreckage that was clearly a weather balloon. Nobody even disputes that. But the idea that it was he who authorised the distribution of a press release, there's no way that any commanding officer of probably one of the most sensitive units in the US Air Force at the time in 1947 would have issued, issued the... Uh, the statement asserting that a disc had been recovered unless they knew for sure that a disc had been recovered. And th this is why I think there is a paucity of analysis and a willingness to be credulous on both sides relating to Roswell. Because I think modern ufology has allowed itself to be led a little too easily with Roswell in the sense that people have, I think, too readily leapt to conclusions that there was definitely an Air Force cover-up, that there were bodies recovered, that there were spaceships recovered. We just don't know enough to say that for sure. The conclusion that I came to in my book was that indubitably lies were told. Indubitably, the Air Force put out a press release asserting that a flying disc had been recovered, and then it did a backflip and retracted that and forced Jesse Marcel, their intelligence officer, to pose with what was clearly weather balloon material. And then, look, frankly, the issue died because the media in the 1940s swallowed that lame explanation, and it wasn't until the 1980s when researchers started digging that Marcel was tracked down and he admitted or asserted that he had been told to lie and that he knew full well that the material that he was posing with in that celebrated photograph was not what was found on the farm and that he was well aware that there were indeed recovery operations that were undertaken by the US Air Force and that there was contemporaneously with the cover-up, it was a recovery operation that involved allegedly the recovery of craft. Now, I, I know that back in the 1990s, under pressure from different congressmen, the US Air Force subsequently tried to say that what it was was really was a mobile spy balloon, which was a particular type of high-altitude balloon that carried an array underneath it. But the problem was that when you do the analysis and actually look at what the mobile balloon looked like, it bore no resemblance to what people say they saw. It cannot plausibly explain. And even the Air Force, in its clumsy efforts to try and cover up what it actually knows, issued another amendment. And in 1994, they issued a laughable, a risible statement where they, they called it uh, Roswell Case Closed, I think, in, in, in vainglorious hope that they could once and for all put a nail through this coffin. And uh, they, they asserted 
totally implausibly that, that what people had seen that looked like humanoids, tiny little humanoids, aliens, if you like, were in fact crash dummies that were dropped in the 1950s from balloons to test the impact of, um, uh, you know, falling uh, aerial objects on the ground. Now, quite apart from the fact that people were adamant that they'd seen these objects in the 1940s, not in the 1950s, the crash dummies that they referred to were far too large to adequately explain the supposed humanoids that were recovered in the 1940s. It just didn't ring true. And frankly, the Air Force has tied itself up in knots with the ridiculous lies that it def definitely has told about Roswell. And frankly, where I've come to as a journalist is, yes, lies have been told. The Air Force, the US Air Force, has admitted lying. It's, it has formally admitted a cover-up. But then it's tied itself up with a double backflip with Pike in lying even further. And frankly... The, the credibility and the plausibility of the US Air Force is in tatters with the current remaining explanation for Roswell, which just doesn't ring true. And okay, uh, you've got the statement that, um, as, you, as you rightly assert, a guy called Lieutenant Walter Hout uh, in retirement on his deathbed signed, where he asserted that he was shown by his commanding general at Roswell a craft that was retrieved and put in the hangar at Roswell before it was finally sent on to Wright-Pat. Now, you might assume that I would go, oh, well, case closed. Walter Hart signed a statement. That's the end of the matter. It must be true that they've recovered an alien spacecraft. But there are problems with Walter Hart's affidavit. Firstly, he previously signed another affidavit during his lifetime where he asserted that there was no such recovered craft and he wasn't aware of any such thing. So he perjured himself. He's declared a willingness to lie under oath. So that immediately, in my view as a journalist, puts his credibility in question. So frankly, the best I can say about Roswell is that yes, there is a mystery there. Yes, the Air Force lied. Yes, there are witnesses who say that they saw a craft of some kind, but nothing that anybody has said publicly can be treated as definitive because there's been so many lies told and, and been so much pressure put on people to lie. And there have been confabulators and hoaxes who've entered the mix as well, who've muddied the waters. I, I just find it impossible to be sure one way or the other. But the only way to definitively to get to the bottom of this is to is to go and find new sources, new source material, which is what I set out to do when I did my book. And so I wrote letters to the people that I thought might know something. And one of the people that I wrote to was Matt Kovitz, the former Director of Science and Technology Development for the US Navy, one very big kahuna in the United States military infrastructure. And he, probably because he was on his deathbed, knowing that he was going to be dead within a few months, gave me his candid acknowledgement that, yes, he was aware of the program. He was aware of briefings that he'd been given where he was told that the United States did recover allegedly multiple craft. 
and that there were engineering attempts going on at this time to back engineer that technology. He also told me of a trip that he made as an expert on a particular type of electron beam welding, where he was invited by the US Air Force to go and look at a large lump of metal that he felt he could not explain with any known terrestrial technology. It was bonded in ways at the atomic level that went beyond his understanding of how metals can be bonded. It wasn't an electron beam weld, which is what they thought it might be. It was bonded, he said to me, at the molecular level. And he was fascinated by it because he said it looked like the bulkhead of some kind of craft. And uh, it was two different types of metal that were bonded together in a way that he could not explain. So he introduced me to other people who spoke to me on background and who I still communicate with on a very confidential basis. And they are people who've told me that they are aware of and or working in what is known colloquially inside this secret group as the program. And they assert that there is indeed a secret United States program underway to back engineer recovered non-human intelligently crafted technology. Now, you might think that when I'm told that kind of thing by people speaking to me on both on the record and on background, I immediately assume that it's true. But I can't because my job as a journalist is to test those allegations and to try to verify them. And there's no way I can verify them. But I do think that there is a substantial reason to believe that the US government either is lying or has been lied to by sections of its defence and military intelligence establishment. What we need to know is why. So now we hear from episode 10. In this second clip, Greg Lawson is talking about the Roswell incident. In his book, Roswell, the After Action Report, the veteran detective uses his forensic statement analysis and his thousands of hours of training and experience to review the cultural influence, historical context and eyewitness testimony of the closest involved. So it was Mac Brazel who found this stuff on his ranch, or not? it's not his ranch, was it? He was the foreman of the ranch. He took it to the police. What do you make of Mac Brazel? Because was there a thing where... The army took him and they kept him for a few days. And when he came out, his story changed. Yeah. And, and once again, that information comes out 30 plus years later. The agreed upon, mostly <laughs> agreed upon incident that happened was he found this debris. Uh, a few days go by and he goes back out and he collects it up and then he takes it into C. Sheriff Wilcox. Now, depends on what story you hear, because there's, there's several different stories on it, but all of them are pretty much the same. Um, the Proctors, who were a neighbor, um, their stories that their son was with him when he was out riding his horse and, and looking for uh, damage to fence lines in the area. And then some stories are his, his son was with him, when it comes down to it, it really doesn't matter whether the proctor said, hey, you should take that to the police 
um, because they were used to weather balloons coming down. A lot of different balloons would have tags on them, and some of them were useless, uh, and some of them had equipment on them where you would get a a reward if you turned it in. So um, there's the story that the proctor said, hey, uh, you ought to go take that uh, to the sheriff, and, and maybe there's a reward or something for it. So he brought some of that material to Sheriff Wilcox in Roswell, which is actually further away than, than Corona from the crash site. However, it had the Air Force base there, and everyone presumed that this material was probably um, the U.S. government. So anyway, he takes it to, to Sheriff Wilcox. Sheriff Wilcox looks at it and goes, I don't know what that is, but it's uh, obviously um, you know uh, military stuff, so let's contact the Roswell Army Airfield. And uh, that's when Major Marcel gets assigned to follow up and meet with Matt Grazel and, and Sheriff Wilcox there at the, uh, at the sheriff's office. And uh, they decide to go out to the location and, and see what they can find. So that's, once again, I'm really generalizing things because I have a, a huge amount of respect for a lot of the different investigators that have done a ton of work have spent thousands and thousands of their own dollars to get this stuff done and try to figure this out. Um, I can't choose one or the other for the simple fact that bottom line, it really doesn't matter why, <laughs> what day, uh, what material was brought or whatever. The fact that whatever happened uh, started Jesse Marcel in his vehicle heading to the foster ranch. And that's all that really matters at that point. Yeah, and, and you say in the book that Brazil had found weather balloons in the past, so he knew what they were. So it seems a bit odd that he'd find this stuff and not straight away know that it's a weather balloon and go to the police and get it checked out. Yeah, a lot of people uh, out there had had found these different different type things, and you know when you when you have uh, Amagoro, you know nuclear test proving grounds in the area. Uh, you have all kinds of people that are involved in doing that stuff and nobody's talking to one another because it's all pretty much secret and everybody's working on a different facet of a particular idea uh, and trying to support, you know, the, the general policy of whatever uh, the, the military or government uh, has chosen to go with. You know, everybody's using different material, different things, or they're, they're trying out different things. So it, it would make sense. It would make complete sense that, uh, this material could be something unusual. And also, you know, it could be just, I can't get the material I need. So I'm going to use something from the local store. And, uh, and you, you go and you buy j just like anybody else, uh, uh, the material that you need. And it's real, uh, it's kind of interesting because I've seen a lot of, uh, different, magazine articles and books and stuff like that, where they're talking about, you know, the, the government would not have done that. They have their own material. They do this, they do that. I'm like, okay, that's not true at all. Um, I, I was in the Navy during uh, desert storm and uh, we fabricated all kinds of stuff. If we don't have the, the material that on board, uh, you know, we go to then to a, a, a tender ship, um, a ship that's designed to fix other ships. Go contact them. If they don't have the material on board, you outsource it. You go to whatever closest country is that's friendly to us 
that we have already like basically open purchase agreements with and you locate the stuff that way and you, you uh, obtain it that way. It, it wouldn't be anything unusual to, to have a weather balloon or that type of equipment land on your property. It wouldn't be unusual to find it. And it wouldn't be unusual that it would be something that might not be normal. So there's the story that Jesse Marcel then collected a load of debris from this ranch and he was on his way back to the base and he went home and he showed it to his son and his wife. And you met his son, Jesse Marcel Jr. several times. Does he yes. seem like a genuine guy to you? Oh, super nice guy. Great guy. Uh, you know, uh, medical doctor, um, flight surgeon, um, in the military, he got recalled for a desert storm and he was long in the tooth then. Yeah. He was just a nice guy. You know, every time I talked to him, he never said that his dad covered a flying saucer that never came up. He indicated that his father found something special, something very unusual that he believed was not created on earth, you know, it's created someplace else. You know, that, that's the funny thing about like both of it, him and his father, all Jesse Marcel would have had to have said is they recovered a flying spaceship and I don't know what happened to it. They took it someplace. I guess it went to right pad. It went to DC. It went someplace. I don't know what happened. Put the whole thing in there. Yeah. There was uh, alien, you know, equipment. There was uh, all this stuff. Jesse Marcel never said anything about that. He said that he, you know, collected some debris that he couldn't identify and he didn't believe it was of this earth. And Jesse Marcel Jr., his son, sitting or was asleep at home and his dad comes home and wakes him up and says, hey, come in here. This is really something special. I want to show you this. Now, the crazy part about that is you have the debunkers that will go in and say, really? Okay, so these guys are the best of the best the highest credible, you know, just incredible guys, their top secret security clearance. And this knucklehead takes a bunch of space debris and takes it home and exposes his, his wife and his son to it. Uh, who would do that? You know, who, who would, uh, who would bring this stuff home if it's that big of a secret and it's from outer space and let your son, you know, pick it up and look at it and stuff. That's crazy. That's contemporary thinking. At that same time, they had airmen standing out in the middle of the desert and letting bombs explode 40,000 feet over their head to see what it was like. <laughs> you know, all those guys got cancer. That's not what, you know, that's not what Jesse Marcel was thinking that this stuff could have new, you know, could, could have radiation coming off of it. He found this very special stuff, couldn't identify, didn't know what it was. And brought it home to share with his son and have a moment with his son and go, look at this. This is something incredible. This changes the whole world. Uh, I want you to remember this. You know, I want you to see this. I want to be a, this to be a part of our history. Uh, that's why he did it. Um, he, you know, we wouldn't do that today because we wouldn't know what kind of Alien debris, you know, microbes, uh, bacteria, radiation, whatever, uh, could expose our family to that. That this was pre-TV. You know, Jesse Marcel wasn't watching Outer Limits. Outer Limits happened way after that. 
Jesse Marcel didn't watch the moon landing because it happened way after that. So he's working on 1947 technology. And so he brings it home. Yeah, it makes no sense. If it's that secret, why would he do that? Uh, if he's that much, if he had that much integrity to have this huge, you know, over top secret security clearance, why would he take it home and expose his family to not only a pathogen, radiation, but also to the knowledge that, uh, you know, maybe there's uh, Soviet operatives that were working, Russian operatives that were working uh, in Roswell. I'm sure there were uh, trying to gather up information. Why would you expose your family to uh, a piece of intelligence that, uh, you know, foreign operatives might be after? But, uh, but he did. And he didn't deny that at all. He, he said it happened. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And so now we hear from episode 30. And this third clip is an interview with Kevin Randall. Kevin is a retired lieutenant colonel who served in Vietnam as a helicopter pilot and Iraq as a battalion intelligence officer. He started investigating Roswell in the early 1980s and has interviewed first-hand witnesses to the incident. So if the idea of a crashed craft doesn't come from Marcel, where did that come from? Other people were talking about that. Marcel just mentioned the debris field, but when we got into the deeper, we got into people talking about it. Um, Loretta Proctor was a very nice lady that, that helped us out. She, I think, lived on the ranch closest to where Brazel lived in 1947. Her and her husband, uh, Floyd, and their son um, would sometimes ride with Brazel out on the ranch. And um, part of it came from him. I, I talked to him twice, both times by accident. He was very reluctant to talk, didn't want to talk to anybody about this. Um, eventually took his mother out to the area where the, the main body of the craft was found and talked to her a little bit about that. So it, it sort of filled it through Loretta Proctor and her son. But he uh, mentioned to me briefly, and I'm saying very briefly, something like that, because both time I talked to him, I um, got him on the phone by mistake. I was calling Loretta Proctor to get some information from her, and he answered the phone. He sometimes was with his mother. D. Proctor was his name. Don't know why I couldn't remember that. D. Proctor. Anyway, um, he, he mentioned briefly to me something about that. I think that uh, Loretta mentioned more to Tom Terry and Don Schmidt about what he had told them, what, what Dee had told his parents. So we, we've got part of that. And then we've got other people who were involved in the recovery of the bodies. Now, when Bill Moore was doing his investigation, the only place that they come up with the craft and bodies was this story from Barney Barnett over on the plains of San Augustine. I don't think that story has anything to do with Roswell. I think it, some, if Barnett saw something, it was, it was later. It was not 1947. But that was the only craft and body stories they had. 
when we get in the investigation, we began to find people from the Roswell area that had seen the craft in the body. So we have a number of people who talked about that sort of thing. One of them was Glenn Dennis, and unfortunately his story blew up. I don't believe it was credible. Talked to a woman named Frankie Rowe. Her father had been a firefighter in the Roswell Fire Department, lieutenant in the fire department in 1947. And Frankie Rowe said that her father had come home and told them about going out to the site and seeing, seeing the bodies. Now, Frankie Rowe, her father was Dan Dwyer, by the way. I went to the fire department because the story was the fire department had gone out there on a run, a fire run. And I could find nothing in the records to suggest that. And then others were saying, well, the Roswell Fire Department wouldn't fight fires outside the city limits. And I asked a number of the firefighters about that. And they said, what are we supposed to do? Let it burn? Of course we went out there. But what apparently happened was a colonel from the base, always a colonel, never a captain, never a major, always a colonel for some reason, came to the firefighters and said to them, you don't need to go out there. We got it covered. But Dan Dwyer went out in his private car. So, of course, there was no record because it was him acting as a private citizen and went out there and saw the saw the bodies and related that to, to the family. So Frankie Rowe, early on in the investigation, put us on to Dan Dwyer. Now, Carl Flock, when he did his book, Roswell, Inconvenient Facts and a Will to Believe, and I think that refers more to the people who want to disbelieve that Roswell was alien and was a mogul balloon, but that's a whole other argument, uh, talked to a firefighter who was there in 1947, a guy named Smith. I talked to him as well eventually. And according to Smith, and it's the same story that Smith told me was that you know the fire department didn't go out there. And Carl was happy with that and reported it in his book. When I talked to the guy, I asked the next question, which Carl didn't ask, which was, do you know Dan Dwyer? And the first thing Smith says to me, oh yeah, I know Dan, he went out there. Somehow Carl never got that information. So I got it from, from not only Frankie Rowe now, I've got it from one of the firefighters who was there and says, oh yeah, he went out there. This is how we developed into the craft and the bodies aspect of it based on the testimonies of the people we were talking to. Uh, the sheriff's family, we couldn't talk to Sheriff Wilcox or his wife because they had both passed away, but we could talk to the daughters, um, Phyllis McGuire and Elizabeth Polk. And we could talk to the granddaughter, Barbara Duggar, and sat down with her. And she was talking about how her, her grandmother, she called her, called her big mama, Inez Wilcox, told her that what had happened, what the sheriff had been involved in, and that there were bodies. Inez Wilcox wrote an article, I think she had planned to publish it in like Reader's Digest or something like that, uh, called Four Years in the County Jail. And it was about her experiences as a matron in, the, in Roswell in 1947. And in that story, she has a long paragraph about the, the crash. So we have that kind of a documentation. The problem is there's no date on the document. If she wrote it prior to 1980, it's much more important than if she wrote it after 1980. And the one thing we can try to do is trace down the date of her death. And if she died prior to 1980, well, clearly she had to write it prior to that. Uh, we found out that she died in 1989. So she could have been aware of the hoopla about the Roswell case. But in the book, you know, I, I've got the whole story that, that she wrote there from that document uh, about the, the sheriff being involved in the part of the retrieval operation, how he'd sent deputies out, as a matter of fact, to look for it. And they found a burned area, but not necessarily the same place that Brazel was talking about. 
So when we looked at it, we got a, we began to get a lot of stories of the craft in the body. Some of them didn't pan out. Barney Barnett, for example, talked about it. The best thing we can say is if Barnett saw anything, it didn't happen in the summer of 1947. We had Glenn Dennis, whom we believed in the beginning, talking about it. We later determined that his story was bogus as well. But then we had people like the uh, J.C. Smith at the fire department. We had Frankie Rowe. We had a guy named Melvin Brown, who retired from the Air Force, I guess. He married an English lady and uh, retired to England. So we had talked to the fam- his family. Uh, Melvin Brown, I think, um, had died before anybody had a chance to chat with him. But we got the, with the story from his family about seeing the bodies. He was part of the guard detail. In the, I don't know if it worked the same way in the British military, but in the American military, we all go through basic training. And you learn basic stuff like how to stand guard duty and how to clean your rifle. Even though your next assignment might not have to do anything with anything like that, you get that basic training. And so when a situation arises and you need a lot of extra uh, bodies to do things, you sweep through the base and you pick up anybody who is not uh, engaged in something more critical and you take them out and use them for the the guards and Melvin Brown was swept up like that. He was a cook, big deal. He was still trained in these basic elements. He was taken out. According to the story, he was put in the back of a truck to escort some material back to Waswell and he was told not to look under the tarp. And of course, the minute the sergeant or the lieutenant or the captain who told him not to look under the tarp turned his back, Brown looked under the tarp. And he said there were two or three bodies. Um, the, the daughters disagree on the, num- the exact number of bodies. The point is that he, he saw bodies. Uh, Timothy Good, in his book, Above Top Secret, and I think it published in 1989, as a matter of fact, uh, relates the story. He didn't, he didn't give the name Brown's name, but he did uh, talk about that, that aspect of the story. And we've, we talked to the, um, the family members and that sort of thing as well ourselves. So we, we've got that information. So all of that led us to the craft and the bodies that way. We've got a number of witnesses, reluctant witnesses, <clears throat> who talked about that sort of thing. But we did we did find them, and that was how we were got to that. At one point, I had said I'd talked to eight people who had seen the seen the bodies. I think the number is now reduced based on um, some of the, the the stories not being as accurate as they could be, but. There was, there are stories out there. There are reliable stories out there. And I recount them in the book, both as um, these are more reliable. And here are some, yeah, I'm not really sure about, but the stories are out there. And I have not been to verify the legitimacy of the story, but I put it out there and and make that qualification uh, so that the readers have an opportunity to decide for themselves whether or not they want to accept the story as true, or if they might have some additional information that will help us uh, understand exactly what went on. Now we move to episode 72, and in this fourth clip, this is about the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident, and we hear from Gary Heseltine. Gary is a former police detective, UFO investigator and researcher. He has used his skills to reinvestigate this case literally from day one after the events had taken place. With over five years of research, he examined virtually everything ever published about the case, and in the process has discovered a wealth of material. There's James Stewart's encounter while he was working on an aircraft. Well, there were 10 days after the book had been published on Amazon, he, he rings me up. Uh, he sent me a message and said, I've been checking my personnel records. I 
had my incident in December of 1979. But his account now is a year earlier. Now, there is a kind of a twist to this because it's it's still relevant in the story because if you think of the precursor cases, we had one in February 80, July 80, and then November 80, and then the clutch of sightings around late December. Well, it now then goes into this precursor case, and it's an exceptional precursor case. Yeah, because it is bizarre, and it's almost... It's like science fiction. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, basically what happened was... We're not talking about a US Air Force security police officer, which is good in a sense because it broadens this uh, story to not just the police. Uh, He was what was called a crew chief, and he was working on repairing a Phantom. Now, there's been some discussion post this release of the book from people who served there and said, well, the Phantoms are gone and it was all A-10s. But uh, according to um, James Stewart, uh, there were just three F4 Phantoms left, and they had to be gone by, I think, the end of January 1980. And I've then gone back to some people who queried that and said, yeah, that's possible. So essentially, it was all A10s, and all the Phantoms had gone to other bases, but there may have just been two or three that were left. So it's all, to me, plausible. And I know from my time in the Royal Air Force, that there were, you know, when I first got to Honington, there were still Buccaneers, two or three of them, uh, three or four Hunter aircraft, older jets, and then it all went to tornadoes. So there were always one or two that were kept back for whatever reason. So that seems totally plausible to me. Okay, here's his story. And it's a fantastic story, um, wh- whatever year it is. Uh, so basically, he is close to the East Gate. Now, anybody familiar with Rendlesham who has visited or have read books will know that there's quite a lot of activity um, uh, seen at or near uh, the back gate of RAF Woodbridge, and and it's just referred to as the East Gate, equivalent to the Butley Gate at uh, RAF Bentwater. So he is working on an aircraft, um, on an F-4 Phantom, and uh, it's night. He's doing it at night, it's illuminated the area, and he's underneath the aircraft. Uh, and if you think of, in simple terms, of a, an aircraft with an undercarriage and it's like bomb doors open, and it's got a ladder up to uh, the cockpit, and he, he is underneath at the time this event begins. Now, it's at night, and apparently, and this is a quiz, uh, is is odd in itself, and adds some credence to the story, a little, the back, the, the back gate at Woodbridge was not routinely manned, for want of a better phrase. Um, there was a little, what's called a guard shack there, just for inclement weather, they could stand inside, and there was a telephone connection, which is relevant to the later story in December 1980, when, you know, the John Burroughs uh, and, and Sergeant Bud Stephens see lights in the forest, they go, and they use that phone to alert control. That's a year later. But there is this guard shack there, and there is a telephone connection. But the interesting thing was, it's, I'm told by many of the people I've interviewed, that it was not routinely guarded, unless they were on some kind of an alert or an exercise. Now, it, it turns out that in this incident involving James Stewart, there was a security, US Air Force security police officer on it. 
the question as to why. Okay, so consider that in the background. There is somebody there. Now, that person would be armed, and that plays a part in this story. So he's working approximately 50 metres or so, uh, 50 to 100 metres, shall we say, from the, the, the back gate where that uh, security police officer would be. And he's working on the underneath of this F4 Phantom. And apparently it had, had a, it recently had a new uh, canopy screen, you know, plexi screen uh, fitted for the pilot. Um, he was working underneath. It's the middle of the night. And then suddenly he feels a vibration uh, from above the, the uh, what he thinks is a, like on the tail, the spine going down from the back of the cockpit down to the, the, the tail of the aircraft. He feels a judder and he thinks, what's that? It's as if somebody stood on the vehicle, on, on the aircraft. So he comes out and at the same time, he goes up to the cockpit ladder and he starts climbing. And as he's climbing up, or is it, is it probably just second, moments before this, he hears what he can only describe as something being scraped. Yeah, yeah so something was scratching the cockpit. Didn't know what it was, so he comes out, he climbs up the ladder. He doesn't see anything, but he feels the uh, aircraft judder, the spine of the aircraft judder. And as he climbs up, again, he doesn't see anything, but he sees some kind of footprint along the tail going to uh, the spine of the plane from the cockpit down to the tail of the aircraft, uh, and indistinct, but in the moisture of the night air, there was some kind of footprint. And then he felt another judder, as if something had jumped down from the tail into the nearby bushes, and there was lots of nearby bushes, because it was very close to the perimeter fence. And he, he, he obviously looked, and he saw something scurrying through the undergrowth. And anybody that's been to Air Force bases will know that they're always set very close to perimeters and forests and whatever, just basically for cover, camouflage, etc. And so there's lots of undergrowth. And he, he doesn't see what the actual object is, but something is moving away from him through the bushes towards the perimeter fence. Then something even more bizarre happens. He then hears gunshots being fired from the direction of the East Gate. So he's assuming it's the US Air Force Security Police Officer, doesn't know his name. But basically, somebody begins shooting. So he, rightly as anybody would do, hits the deck from under the, underneath the aircraft for protection. And, and he then hears uh, the guard, whoever it was, shout something along the lines of, get away, get away. And a couple of more shots fired. I think there were maybe two, and then a pause, and then two more shots. And something else is scurrying through the bushes, not seeing what it was, but something is scurrying away, and it appears to be there are two things, that's all you can describe because they were never seen, scurrying away in the direction of the forest outside of the perimeter fence. Now, at the time in 1980, uh, the, the, the trees were much closer, and it was before the big hurricane, as it were, destroyed most of the original trees in 1987. So there were lots. The, the layout is different from what it is now. 
lots of trees have grown back, but they're not the same trees and they're not the same height, etc., as they were. So there was a clump of trees near to the east gate, approximately 150 uh, yards, as they would say then, perhaps 175 metres now, uh, from the east gate where the east gate had originally been, because it changed position slightly. So approximately 150, 175 metres away from the east gate, something towards a clump of trees, and at the same time, these two objects, the, the, whatever they are, scurrying through the bushes, they're both going in the same direction, and Airman, uh, the, the crew chief, the guy who's working on the aircraft, sees a UFO, classic UFO, descending uh, vertically, down, 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 in behind this clump of trees. And this is not, not more than 150 to 175 metres from the East Gate in its original position. Wow, this is entirely new. I'm, wow, I've never heard of this. And it comes down, and then it goes out of sight. But these two objects, whatever they were, things were screened towards it. So you can only draw an assumption, rightly or wrongly, that these things were heading towards that landing craft, UFO, whatever you want to call it. But that's an incredibly bizarre thing. Now, when the shots are heard, for some reason, uh, it, it would trigger his boss to, to, to suddenly turn up where he was, having heard the shots, and he basically said to him, get in, get in. Uh, we thought you'd been abducted. Sounds crazy. It sounds like science fiction, but get in. And, he, and I think there's some talk of we thought you were a, one, a, a fifth person that had been taken. Now, it, it really does sound like science fiction, but when you hear him tell it and you check him out as a serviceman, I have no reason to disbelieve him. The fact that it's a fantastic account really is not that fantastic when you then compare it to many of the other accounts that, that occurred over the Rendles and Forest incident, i.e. where entities and, and things like that, people are allegedly abducted. So it, it's just one of these bizarre events but it was completely new, and originally he said it was December 1980, but it now turns out when he uh, uh, checked his records, it was December of 1979. So it just throws up more questions. And, and interestingly, uh, some people who have been involved in Rendlesham have said it was as if the US Air Force knew something was coming. Now, some people have speculated that that's an exercise and whatever, but... I can go into the reasons why I don't think that holds any water later on just by the number of incidents, the number of different shaped objects that are seen, the entities, etc. It's just we didn't have the technology to get anywhere near doing that. However, some people have said that they thought uh, it was weird, it was as if they anticipated something was coming. Well, if you now think of this now, December 1979, a year later, almost exactly a year later, I think he thought it was seven. 28th of December, when his event occurred, 1979. It's literally the same time period a year later when this cluster of what we now know as the RFI, the Ramblestone Forest Incident, all occurs. So if you think about it in that way, maybe there's something to this that said maybe they might come back at Christmas 1980. It's just another little take on it. And even though it's not part of the main cluster of late December sightings, I still think it's a very powerful testimony 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. So now on to episode 21. And in this last clip, we hear from Terry Lovelace. Terry is a six-year veteran of the United States Air Force, where he served as a medic and EMT from 1973 to 1979. Terry was on a night shift as an emergency medical technician in the United States Air Force when he was called out to an emergency at one of the nuclear missile silos close to his base. You tell a fascinating story about a black diamond craft that you saw over a nuclear silo when you were in the Air Force. I sure did. Um, at, in 1977, I was stationed, well, for my entire enlistment, I was stationed at Whiteman Air Force Base. And Whiteman Air Force Base is still there in Western Missouri. It's now home to um, our B-2 bombers, big flying wing thing. And, uh, and it's a nuclear base still. When I was there, they had B-52s armed with nuclear weapons. And they also had a squadron of Minutemen II ICBM missiles, and they were in missile silos, and they were spread out all over the countryside because it was very rural. It was it, it was nowhere back in the day, and of course in the '80s the place started to build up, and then in the '90s they they pulled all the nuclear weapons out of the silos. But when I was there, there were still silos there spread out all over all over the the farms and in the fields. And uh, one January night, bitterly cold January night, 1975. So it was two years before what happened at Devil's Den. And uh, we got a call. Toby, my, my friend, and I worked in the emergency room. We were medics, EMTs. And we responded. You know, someone had a heart attack. There was a, uh, you know, a car accident or, you know, any any manner of, of things that would require emergency an emergency response, we would respond to it. So there was a special phone that we had. It was a red phone that we called a, a crash phone. And when that rang, we jumped to answer it because that meant that at a nuclear facility or out on the flight line somewhere, there was some type of accident that required medical attention. And those calls were priority over everything. Toby took the call, uh, as I remember, while I went out and warmed up the uh, ambulance because it was so cold outside. It was, uh, like I say, January. We took off to a missile silo. Uh, I called it Kilo 5 in the book. Uh, to be honest with you, I don't remember what letter designation it had, uh, but I think it was something 5, Delta, Whiskey, Charlie 5, some, something. Uh, so I just called it Kilo 5 in the book. Uh, and we went out, and there were a dozen security police cars all around this missile silo in the middle of, you know, 10,000 acres of cornfields and trees. And uh, I, I, I rolled up on the thing. As we approached it, it was weird because these dozen Air Force security cars all had their flashing lights going. 
And there was, um, it was so cold that there was this big cloud of exhaust fumes over the silo. That cloud of fumes reflected that pulsating light because these things were all flashing out of sync. And it was just a very eerie, you know, kind of orange, pinkish, glowing light that set the tone for everything. And uh, there was a um, captain in charge standing in the middle of the road with a radio, and he pulls me over. I roll my window down, and he says, park your ambulance over there. Your man's okay. He's walking and talking. You know, but nobody goes in, nobody comes out until I give the word. So park over there and stay off your radio. So this was all really, never seen anything like this before. I had no idea what was going on. And my friend, my friend Toby was always uh, the impulsive one. We're in this ambulance, we got the engine running, but it's so cold that the inside of the windows are, are covered in frost. So my friend Toby says, I'm going to go have a look-see and see what's going on. I'm like, man, we were told to stay in the ambulance. You know, that was an order. I mean, this guy's an officer. We should, and, you know, he, he didn't care. He threw on his parka and jumps out. And just a few minutes later, he yanks open my driver's side door of the ambulance, pulls me, grabs me by my shoulder, and is pulling me out. And he says, Terry, man, you have got to see this. You have got to see this. And I'm like, whoa, 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 hang on. I, I grab my parka and I hop out. And here's this captain with his head tilted back and he's looking up at something. And I'm looking around and here are maybe 20 security policemen, all of them with, uh, with rifles, uh, all of them looking up. So I looked up and directly over the launch tube of this Minuteman II ICBM, and about 50 feet in the air, there was this matte black, multifaceted thing uh, about the size of a full-size band, very similar to what was described at Rindlesham, find out later, uh, only with maybe a few more faceted cuts to it. My friend Toby had the presence of mind to count the panels that he could see, and from memory, uh, he could he drew a pretty good rendition of it. Uh, I, I wish I had a copy of that because he drew a pretty good picture of the thing. We watched it. We all watched this thing for a few minutes, and then it just shot off, like the like the thing I saw when when I was eight years old. It just shot off toward the horizon and was gone. Never heard a sound. Uh, there were no visible means of propulsion. When it was hanging in the air, I mean you're. All of these security police cars had their spotlight on it. So this thing is matte black and your eyes, I guess, your mind plays tricks on you like this can't be, you know, I'm looking for wires or somehow this thing is suspended in air. But of course there were none. It was just dead still, no markings on it of any kind. When it shot off, I looked at this captain and he turned around, looked at me and he smiled real big. I was expecting to get, you know, chewed out for getting out of the ambulance. And it was, it was an interesting moment because it was just two human beings, irrespective of rank, sharing this, this encounter with something not from this world. And um, in a minute or two, he snaps back into his role. We both snapped back into our respective roles. And uh, he said, I'll get the gate open for you. And he ordered some security policemen to open the gate 
And we went in and got our guy who was, uh, curiously, the guy had fallen off a ladder while servicing this, this missile. Either broke his ankle or sprained it real badly. I, I don't recall which, but uh, this poor guy, uh, they, his friends took him and seated him in this, uh, this uh, little building. There's a little brick building. You open the door and there's a desk there. It's tiny. There's a desk there, a coat rack, and an, and an elevator door with one button down. And that'll take you down to the base of the missile. They had put him in this room with no windows and propped his leg up on a trash can. And this poor guy can hear all this noise going on outside. And when we picked him up and got him into the ambulance, he's like, what I miss? What would I miss? What would you guys see? What'd you guys see? And we're like, well, we told him, Toby told him, yeah, this is what we saw. He's like, oh man, I didn't get to see any of this. So thanks for listening to this compilation episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Now, a great way to support the podcast is to sign up to Patreon. Just go to patreon.com forward slash alien UFO podcast. If you join the $2 a month tier, you get an extended episode every month. If you join the $5 a month tier, you'll have access to an extended episode every week. When you sign up, you get access to the episodes in the back catalogue and they are ad free and released two days before the free versions. And please check out my other podcast. It's called Past Lives Podcast. There are over 290 episodes. On the Past Lives podcast, I look into evidence of the afterlife, such as near-death experiences, children with past life memories, mediumship, deathbed visions and other phenomena. And I also release an extra episode of Past Lives podcast every Thursday, and that's called Paranormal Stories. My website is pastliveshypnosis.co.uk, and the link is in the show notes. And in my work as a clinical hypnotherapist, I take people through past life regression. And when you book a past life regression hypnosis session with me and you've signed up to Patreon, you get a 25% discount. I'm offering a free consultation call which can be booked on my website. My Instagram is the past lives podcast with an underscore between each word. And if you enjoy this podcast, please leave a review and be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or via your favourite podcast app to make sure that you don't miss out on any episodes. And thanks for listening.